You're listening to Environmental Investing, the show where we explore market-based approaches to environmental challenges. I'm Aaron Appleton, and on today's show, Artists and the Environment. What role can artists take in helping to address environmental challenges? Nature is the capital upon which all economies and all nations are actually dependent. $7.2 trillion are brought to the United States alone by ocean-related businesses. We have 38 established environmental financial markets. Energy returned on energy investment. cleaner company had a higher P.E. ratio. On this episode, we have Rebecca Miller joining us over the phone from Los Angeles. Rebecca is a film director, screenwriter, and author, most known for her films Personal Velocity, The Ballad of Jack and Rose, Angela, and The Private Lives of Pippa Lee, all of which she wrote and directed. She's also the daughter of the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, Arthur Miller, and the wife of actor Daniel Day-Lewis. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much. To start things off, I want to explore themes from the 2005 film The Ballad of Jack and Rose that you and your husband Daniel Day-Lewis collaborated on. The film tells the story of a bohemian environmentalist named Jack and his teenage daughter who live together on an isolated island commune. I immediately noticed the vivid environmental themes and imagery present throughout the film. Things like the use of wind turbines and solar panels to power Jack's house, or the collection of seaweed to use as fertilizer in the garden, and even the south-facing windows for passive solar heating. Why did you choose to incorporate these into the film? Since I was a child, environmental concerns were my biggest concerns, especially when I was really young. In the 1970s, that was very much in the air, and I was acutely aware of the destruction of our natural resources. And I lived in the country, and every time anyone built a house and disturbed the habitats of the little wildlife around us, I would get so upset and have dreams of planting poisonous snakes in their building sites. Overall, I think I was a kind of budding eco-terrorist at the age of 10. So I sort of went back to that feeling that I had, that nature was holy in some way and had to be left alone and had to be revered rather than disturbed to get into Jack's head. The other thing is that my brother, who is a lot older than me, and he had really been a hippie and lived that life and lived in communes. My brother used to come home to visit with his friends who were all wearing fringed leather garments and named their babies Autumn Rain and things like that. And I was fascinated by them. And I was this little girl wandering around these amazing creatures that seemed to have completely disconnected themselves from the lives of my parents, who, although they themselves were artists, they were pretty bourgeois compared to these people. Anyway, so I was already fascinated by that. Then I read a book called uh, Eden Express by a young man who sort of left everything and went to, uh, he went to an island off of Washington State to a commune, and it was his tale of his experience there. Unfortunately, he went completely mad in the process and had a psychic break, but that was also interesting to me. Uh, besides the observations you made of your brother and his friends, what further research did you do to develop the screenplay? And did it impact your thinking about sustainability or the environment in any way? 
I did a ton of research on communes and how they both flourished and fell apart. I was very interested in, in how they functioned. There's a place called The Farm that I researched pretty carefully. I asked my brother a lot of questions. I studied how Ken Kesey functioned in Oregon, where actually my brother lived on a kind of loose commune in Oregon with Ken Kesey, which was more his farm. But still, the whole communal way of life, the way that people could function. I mean, Jack Slavin in the movie is a perfectionist and somebody who's a utopian, a real utopian. And so in a sense, the rather forgiving attitude I think you have to have to live on a commune would not be his way of thinking and would in fact doom him in terms of being able to live with other people. And that's part of the reason that the commune didn't function, I think, or finally had to fall apart because perfection is something that can really only exist when one person is in the room, I think, if, if at all. But yes, I did a lot of research also in terms of perfect housing, in other words, housing that gave off no waste, more contemporary style. Um, for example, these houses that were being built at the time that I prepared the film in Arizona and in New Mexico that are subterranean and use gray water and solar power and wind power and are completely self-sufficient. It was that that research combined with Iron Age Scottish huts, which my husband, Daniel Day-Lewis, discovered. He was kept mentioning them, and then I found them. And they are actually, it's that shape, a berm shape, that we took, and then we integrated all the technology that I had found from these more modern houses and thinking, well, what would they have been able to have back then? You know, because it was late 60s, early 70s, they were creating this place with the idea of these very old Iron Age Scottish huts, which are built into the ground. They have grass on them, and they have just one door. So they would have had the warmth of the earth and so on. And then we, we built these places. And, you know, it was an amazing experience. When we went to the place that was going to become the set, it was just flat ground, and it was so cold that the sea was frozen in place. It was an amazing sight. And uh, imagining these these people coming to the what seemed like the edge of the world to make their lives and to recreate life in a form that they thought was good. So the actual filming of it, though, probably wasn't as as green. The funny the funny thing is that we were going to shoot in Maine, and there was a place in Maine that looked really good. But the problem is that it was a wetland, and it the, the thing was there was a debate in the area that where we were in Maine about whether or not they would let us shoot there and build there as it was a wetland. I thought, well, that's ironic that we would be shooting in a wetland in a place where the whole movie's about, uh, you know, about this conflict about a wetland. So we ended up going to Canada, um, which was not a wetland and starting there, although there was a lot of marshy area there too. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were able to build the whole thing from nothing. Speaking of wetlands, I was intrigued that the area of conflict in the film centers around suburban sprawl and illegally building over protected wetlands. Why did you decide to focus on that particular environmental issue? Well, I don't remember exactly why I decided on wetlands, although it's something that I know just from growing up in the country in Connecticut that my sister wasn't allowed to build on an area of land because it was a wetland. So that was already in my head that that was something that um, you weren't able to do. There were some 
restrictions. But at the same time, I was also aware that there were buildings going up all over the place and that there must be some bending of rules going on. The truth is there's always going to be a conflict between profit and people wanting to live someplace and business and the environment. And that's, you know, we see it every day, right? The endless conflict of our current lives is the economy versus the environment Although I don't think that needs to be a conflict. I mean, I think ideally those two things will be in stride together, which I suppose is part of what you're trying to get to. So that's where the wetland idea came from. Can you explain a bit more about the process of filmmaking, specifically about what the environmental impact of creating a film might be? I have to say, I, having made now five films, I now have my own company, which is starting to make other films. And I'm interested to think about green filmmaking. How does one make films actually green, not just about being green, but actually green? Because film sets are very wasteful places. A bit like building sites, because you've got a lot of people who drink a lot of coffee and have a lot of bottles of water. And how do you how do you deal with all of the waste in a film set? And it's something that's not obvious, because to ha- tell every single member of the crew to walk around with their own mug clanking on their belt <laughs> <laughs> I'm <laughs> Well, that's a very good segue into the next question I have, which is, what do you think that the role of an artist should be, if any, when it comes to addressing environmental challenges? Uh, maybe things like climate change, loss of biodiversity, air and water pollution, or any number of other environmental issues. Well, I think an artist is a citizen like anyone else. And so I think that if there are enough solutions coming in from different places, that tends to create a sea change in terms of attitude, if you know what I'm saying. I think that every film set is an ongoing emergency, and there's no time to think about how you do things in the moment. The protocol for film sets are very old, and the hierarchy is very old, and we've inherited it throughout the history of filmmaking. Even though now we're making it on video, it doesn't matter. The protocol is the same in terms of how film sets function. So to change that is going to have to, it has to be a kind of systemic change that comes from solutions, if you see what I'm saying, coming from the outside, business solutions that are given to us, and then we think, oh, that's more efficient. That makes more sense economically. If things start to make sense economically, then producers are going to, adopt those methods, whatever they are. And I don't have them in my head exactly. I don't know how, I don't have the exact solutions. But I think that finally, you know, film is very much a business. They're very expensive to make. And if you have solutions that are going to be economically more viable, then those solutions will be adopted. The waste in film sets comes a lot from idling vehicles, from just the waste of paper and plastic. I would say that, you know, in order to keep what they call a honey wagon, which is a place to keep actors or a trailer warm, those things have to be running all the time. So that's an example of, well, how do you, how do you approach that? Somebody would have to have a company of vehicles that are running a different way and be attractive because you're not paying for gasoline because the amount of petrol on, on that, that line of the budget in a film is very high. So if you could kind of say, oh, well, that would go away if you had, for example, electric cars, but then somebody has to invest in those cars, and that's a huge investment. And the thing about film sets is that they're run by unions, unless they're the tiniest film sets or they're in right-to-work right states. 
So that becomes another thing. It doesn't mean that it's impossible, but there just have to be incentives, I think, for people. There, there have to be solutions that are helpful in a practical way because it's one thing for a movie star to decide they want to arrive in a Tesla to some event. That doesn't cost anybody anything. That's an easy thing to do. But to actually get inside of an ecosystem which is completely based on profit or at least not losing money, and is, which is a film set, then there has to be economic incentives to do that. And there has to be solutions, which means that companies have to somehow spring up, which are going to bring those solutions to the table. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of an artist that you know and appreciate that has taken action to address an environmental challenge? Well, I mean, the first person that comes to mind is Leonardo DiCaprio, who has been so passionate about this issue for so long and really spoke out about it. He's given so much energy to talking about the environment. I really respect that enormously. And I think he can make a difference by speaking about it and putting what money he has toward those causes. I mean, I think the other thing is when you have the extra money that you give away to make, you know, to make a decision to give part of that to causes which protect the environment. And also, I suppose, the idea of investing in futuristic models, uh, electric cars and solar energy, wind power, is really interesting. But for that one needs more information. I myself feel like I need more information. I think that there is not a sense of having enough information about it. I think that what you need is a kind of critical mass of information so that then a sea change can start to happen in terms of people getting so sick of being dependent. There's such an incentive on our parts to become more independent. And I think that the incentives have to come from different directions. But I'm actually pretty hopeful that that things are going to start to shift, not necessarily for altruistic reasons at all, but because it just suits us practically. A changing direction here a bit. I'm interested to hear about the inspiration or experiences that most compelled you to pursue the work that you're involved in. What has inspired me to make films and write books? You know, I guess every artist is just trying to tell what they see as the truth at that moment, you know, to interpret the world and to share themselves in some way for other people. It's an effort at communication, and I suppose it's a bridge to others that's a balm for the loneliness that one feels in your own head. You know, it's a way of connecting and in that, it's a quite a hopeful thing. But it, each story has its own itch that I need to scratch. And I think Jack and Rose was definitely, the environment was certainly important, but really what Jack and Rose was about was the nostalgia in advance of having a person that you love very much that you know one day you have to lose and almost pre-mourning that person. So in a sense, it's about nostalgia. And that folds into the environment, too because it's kind of about paradise and being kicked out of paradise and trying to cling to the idea of paradise and perfection. It was the perfect way for me to express this emotion that I had felt as a child but didn't know how to express. The film that I'm just putting out now is a completely different kind of urge that I had to treat in a light way this 
conundrum of how to live now as people where the rule book of relationships and how to have children and how to make families have been sort of thrown out the window and like what do we do now and how do women live now and but trying to treat serious subject matter in a in a light way you definitely not think my jack and rose is definitely not a comedy whereas this is more of a comedy speaking of your new film congratulations um i've been hearing some really good things about it can you give us a little preview of what to expect when it comes out yeah maggie's plan is coming out on may 20th And it's a comedy about what happens when you realize your husband is perfect for his ex-wife. And it's a young woman who has a plan to have a child by herself. And that plan gets derailed by life itself, which sweeps her up in it. And it's got Julianne Moore and Greta Gerwig and Ethan Hawke and Bill Hader and Maya Rudolph. It's funny because I remember showing Jack and Rose once. uh, I think it was at Woodstock. And it got a huge number of laughs, because there are some laughs in Jack and Rose, despite the fact that it's basically a tragic film. And and I remember thinking, I love it when people laugh in my movies. (laughs) So I thought I would try one where there was more of that. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing it. All right, now for our last feature. On each episode, we have a special segment called the Environmental Audio Challenge. And for this segment, our featured guest gives a fun and creative challenge for our listeners to respond to. But first, let's hear our top responses from Imani, Sam, and Max, who are New York City high school students. They are responding to last episode's environmental audio challenge, in which Aniri asked listeners to call in with the name of a country that generates 100% of its electricity from renewable sources. Costa Rica is a country that runs on renewable energy. Bye. Hi, this is Sam Mutton, Iceland. The answer, or one of the answers, is Paraguay. Thank you. Have a nice night. All right, back to Rebecca. Do you have an environmental audio challenge in mind that you'd like to give to our listeners? Okay. Make a short film, three minutes long, with no dialogue about the environment. Ooh, that's excellent. I love that. All right, to respond to Rebecca's environmental audio slash video challenge, um, please call our number at 415-887-2367 and leave a message. And in the message, you'll want to describe the content of your film and a link to where it can be found online. Top recorded responses will then air on the next episode, so stay tuned. Before we end the show, I'm just dying to ask. You had mentioned earlier that as a young girl, you were a bit of a budding eco-terrorist. Do you have any funny stories that highlight this part of your childhood? When I was a kid, there were very, very cold winters, and I was so worried that while we were waiting for the school bus to arrive, all the other parents had their engines on, that I would walk around through the snow and knock on people's windows and ask them to turn their engines off, which was not the most popular thing to do on a freezing cold January day. Uh, How did they respond to that? They would just look at me and just just thinking, oh no, here she comes again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. (laughs) Uh, Did did you explain to them, did you explain to them why you were asking them to do so? Yes, I said, you're polluting. (laughs) Turn (laughs) off your engine. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and this was like asking them to just, like, freeze to their seats while we were waiting for the bus. (laughs) Anyway. 
Well, thank you for taking the time to do this interview with me. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks a lot, and I'll, we'll be in touch. Thanks for listening to Environmental Investing. You can go to environmentalinvesting.com to find the links from this episode's show notes, as well as back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. And now, a message from this episode's featured musical guest. The music you've been listening to on this episode is by The Sound of Joy. I'm Andrew Staff, the band's saxophonist. We're a free jazz-based band out of Carbondale, Illinois. You can find us at facebook.com slash thesoundofjoycarbondale. Carbondale.